Hi everyone, my name is Ian McLaughlin and I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience for now, at least, at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Bo, and I'm honestly pretty excited to hear about what I need to do to live forever. I mean, what pills am I supposed to take every morning, right? <laughs> right, yeah, so, so that's the topic for today. Immortality. Well, I mean, not quite immortality. But pretty much immortality. <laughs> at least the search for immortality. I mean, sorta. Come on call it what you want, but it's basically people who are trying to live forever. I mean, I guess that's kind of true. Um, I don't know if that's how they think about Come it. On, that's definitely how they think about <laughs> okay, it. Okay, you're probably right. But anyways, we're talking about longevity today, and specifically efforts to extend longevity via a handful of biochemical pathways that have received a range of attention from biomedical scientists. And we should probably be clear here, longevity basically means lifespan, and to be specific, a long life. So extending longevity means extending the time that someone is alive. Yeah, so basically the search for the fountain of youth. And there are different camps of biomedical scientists who all think they've found the most promising fountain. So basically, are we talking about some capsules filled with different things that do different things that are sold by different people? I mean, pretty much, yeah. Uh, and there are different contingents of scientists who are interested in extending lifespan as well as health span, by the way. Ah, so there's evidently a difference between life and health span. That's one of the things we'll discuss. Um, in fact, there's a bit of an argument going on, sort of while we speak, in fact, about whether research devoted to extending lifespan is really what we ought to be focused on. As opposed to what? To extending what some call health span. I think I see where this is going. Yeah, it basically, um, it, it's basically the argument that the goal shouldn't be to extend the length of time a human can stay alive. Rather, some argue, we ought to be focused on what it takes to add more years of life that are filled with vigorous, healthy life. Which sounds like a pretty solid argument. Yeah, I mean, well, perhaps we'll see, uh, but that's not all. Oh, the fountain of youth isn't enough? That's right. So there's some drama at the forefront of this world involving over a dozen Nobel laureates. Meaning scientists who've won the Nobel Prize. Right. So over a dozen of Nobel Prize winners, institutions like MIT and Harvard, and a company that may be sidestepping how the government regulates pharmaceuticals by using how it doesn't regulate supplements. So this is very interesting. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, or I guess I don't even know where to start. So you tell me, where should we start? <laughs> I was thinking we might start with the fact that we're basically at the beginnings of a variety of avenues that might lead to extended lifespan, if not health span. And, and so, you know, there's more evidence for some, but compelling evidence for all of them. So I thought we might start by illustrating just how many avenues there are at this point. Okay, let's do it. So how many are we talking about here? Well, to begin, there, there's one thing that's uh, kind of spawned a variety of biochemical targets, and that's caloric restriction. Caloric restriction basically sounds like eating less. That's basically right. It's essentially the old school life extension avenue. It's the most widely studied and the most consistently effective. And it not only extends lifespan, but health span as well. So you're saying that it's the most traveled avenue of longevity. <laughs> okay, I get it. So metaphor overdone. Okay, perhaps. Uh, but so when you say caloric restriction is the most established way to extend lifespan. What do you mean? Right. So it's been studied in a ton of different biological systems. So from cells in a petri dish and nematodes to flies to rodents to primates. So when you say it's beneficial for health span or lifespan, how do they measure that? Is it just basically that the animals live for longer? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is part of it. Um, but a lot of the studies also measure things like age-related disease, neurological diseases, diabetes, or cancers, or cardiovascular disease. Okay, so basically a bunch of things that tend to happen as we get older. And it sounds like... Yeah, uh, but, but when it comes to studies that are interested in health span, so some groups will measure things like insulin sensitivity or body fat accumulation or inflammation. All of which sound like things we sort of know tend to come along with other diseases. Right, um, but before they manifest. So if somebody in um, their mid-60s doesn't have diabetes or cardiovascular disease, but happens to be putting on quite a bit of weight, or if they're beginning to show signs of muscle weakness or early exhausting, um, or, or other things that fall under the broad umbrella of, um, term of frailty, then while they may live for longer, perhaps even beyond life expectancy, they may not be well or feel well or perhaps be able to live independently. Right. So they also test to see if these treatments not only extend life, but extend a good quality of life. And you're saying that caloric restriction has proven to be effective for both? 
Yes, that's right. But there are also some downsides to using it for goals um, regarding longevity. Because I imagine some things depend on eating food. That's exactly right. So it's tough to sustain muscle endurance without eating. And then, you know, other issues like slower wound healing or potential immune system effects or effects on reproductive biology. And, and you know, it's these side effects of caloric restriction that have caused scientists to search for treatments that might be able to induce some or all of the benefits of caloric restriction while avoiding the downsides. So you mean medications? Well, sort of. Um, so some of them are most definitely medications. And, and in fact, some have been used as medications for decades. Whereas some, particularly those who are at the center of the little drama we're going to talk about, are more like supplements. Okay, so should we start talking about some of them? Uh, for sure. Um, but super quick, <laughs> uh, before we dive into the main candidates that have gotten the most attention and are the most compelling, it's worth mentioning that most of these all tend to target similar uh, biological pathways, and so some of them hit more than one. But after delving into uh, the life extension literature, there are clearly some biochemical themes that jump out. Themes. That's right. So, so um, one of the one that's that's basically always mentioned is alterations of the TOR signaling pathway. Um, but of course, the the TOR pathway, you know that that old thing. <laughs> okay, so I, you know I've had it up to here with TOR, but but anyway, so TOR comes up all the time. mTOR to be specific but also um, insulin signaling in a related set of proteins called insulin-like growth factors. Next, there's mitochondrial function, and then a biological process called autophagy, um, another thing called proteostasis, which is really just a word to describe the creation, folding, movement, and elimination of proteins. Biologists with their words. <laughs> okay, just wait until you find out what mTOR stands for. What? The mammalian target of rapamycin. And I'm guessing rapamycin is a medication? Yeah, that's right. So it's not necessarily the most creative naming scheme, but that's what it is. Anyways, the last signaling system that's incorporated into a category referred to as the body's cellular stress response. Okay, so there's a lot there. <laughs> is it worth explaining what these things are? I mean, sort of. Um, the particulars aren't really all that important for someone who's not involved in the research. Um, so we'll talk about it as it comes up. But the last thing that's worth talking about before we just get into the candidates is a dynamic that's sort of thought to be a central feature of aging called senescence. And it means different things in different domains of biology. But in this field, it's a dynamic where cells stop dividing and there's a gradual deterioration of function. So cells basically stop dividing and stop just sort of doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, pretty much. And so a more formal description would be um, irreversible uh, cell cycle arrest. And, and it's thought to be induced after cells are exposed to a variety of stressors. And by stressors, don't you mean like stress basically you know, <laughs> you know the way the term as we normally yeah, yeah use it. i mean so, so there's an argument to be made that chronic stress does in fact result in cellular stress but, but yeah we're talking about things like damage to dna within a cell or perhaps most famously the shortening of telomeres okay i'm pretty sure i've heard either you or someone on pbs or somewhere talk about telomeres what I remember them being are like the little helmets of chromosomes, I mean, <laughs> protecting the chromosomes from being damaged and making the genes go all haywire. So how close is that? That's actually pretty solid. And so, you know, I'm sure basically everybody uses the helmet metaphor, uh, but just so everyone's on the same page, um, chromosomes are those weird squiggly shaped things that are the, the homes of almost all of our genes. And so we have 46 of them, 23 from each parent, and two of them are sex chromosomes. The X and the Y chromosomes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, women have two X chromosomes that I know, and males have an X and a Y. Yes, that's right. And um, so, you know, if you twist a string over and over, it starts to sort of twist in on itself automatically, like, like it starts to wrap around itself. Sure. Well, if you can imagine all of our genomic DNA as super duper long string, and um, all of our genomic DNA, A's paired with T's, G's paired with C's, six billion of those pairs comprising the string. Well, what happens is that the string gets spun and spun until it forms coils, and then those coils are spun and spun into coils of coils, and on and on it goes. And keep in mind, those pairs of A's and T's are literally the instructions for almost every single thing that composes your body. So you're saying they're not particularly important. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's, it's super important stuff. <laughs> and uh, these coils of coils of coils are in every cell of the body, from neurons to the epithelial cells that form our colon. If something goes wrong with them, it can result in cancer or any of a variety of diseases. 
Got it. And so these telomeres, of course, they're important, uh, <laughs> prevent things from going wrong. Yeah. So to make a long story less long, um, because of the way um, that the little molecular machines called enzymes make stuff using the instructions from our genes, every time a cell divides, a small part of the chromosome is lost. And those telomeres are sort of like a little nubbin at the ends of chromosomes that are basically meaningless throwaway stretches of DNA. It's just a little bit that's lost. And so because the telomeres are meaningless, they don't encode anything that actually gets expressed. It's no big deal that small parts of them are lost as cells divide. But I assume the telomeres are only so long, right? I mean, over the course of a lifetime, there's just not much nubbin left to protect the important stuff that they're supposed to be protecting. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the loss of telomere length is another central theme of aging. And to bring us back um, to the topic of senescence, just like damage to DNA can trigger a cell to go into senescence and stop dividing, the loss of telomeres can do the same. Got it. Okay, so um, those are generally the themes that seem to be the main characters in this story of the search for the fountain of youth. So mTOR, insulin and insulin-like protein signaling, mitochondrial function, protein life cycles, autophagy, and stress resistance. All right, so let's get into it. What should I start taking so that I can live healthier and for longer? <laughs> okay, so probably the most intensely studied candidate these days is a drug that's been used to treat diabetes for decades, metformin, which is um, derived from the French lilac, in fact, um, which was used in medieval Europe as a remedy for intense urination um, that eventually became recognized as, as a part of um, what came to be called diabetes mellitus. That's pretty neat. Uh, so metformin is in the French lilac? I mean, sort of. Uh, basically, some of the molecules that are indeed present in the French lilac have chemical structural features that are the basis for metformin. And ever since the 1950s, um, it's been used in one place or another for the treatment of diabetes. However, more recently, metformin has been shown to have interesting beneficial effects for more than just diabetes. I should say, before we get into this part of the conversation, that these claims still haven't reached to the point where any responsible physician would like explicitly prescribe metformin for anything other than diabetes. And, and by that's type 2 diabetes, to be specific. So you can't just go to your doctor and ask for a prescription for metformin unless you have type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say it wouldn't go very well. Um, but there have indeed been some interesting observations in type 2 diabetics who have been on metformin that suggest there might be um, some beneficial effects for a variety of age-related diseases and disorders. So what are we talking about here? Um, cardiovascular and metabolic disorders, neurodegenerative disorders, cancer, chronic inflammation, and frailty. Wow. I mean, that sounds like basically everything. <laughs> or, I mean, at least everything that tends to come up as we get older, right? I mean, I remember when we were talking about cannabis, you said that you tend to be skeptical when people make claims that any one molecule can treat such a variety of things. Do you feel the same way with metformin? That's definitely been my perspective as I've heard metformin come up in, you know, surprising ways over the years. And frankly, you know, it still is. Uh, but it's safe to say that there's been enough evidence amassing to suggest that there could very well be a there there. And it could be due to some of its pharmacological interactions beyond its effects that are beneficial for diabetes. Are, are these basically off-target effects? Like, is it interacting with things outside of the stuff that's important for diabetes? That's part of it. Um, but part of it could be just because the way it treats diabetes is by activating a biochemical pathway in liver cells. Um, but what's kind of wild about metformin is that its primary mechanism of action is still kind of controversial. So um, for a while now, it's been sort of accepted that the primary mechanism of action was activating a protein called AMP, activating protein kinase, or AMPK. I'm getting the feeling that there's going to be a lot of abbreviations in this one. <laughs> I know. Um, and, and honestly, this is the kind of stuff that the like first and second year students in a bunch of fields of biology end up spending long nights memorizing for the test the next day and then forgetting unless it's relevant to their work. And I mean, it's the kind of stuff that can make a lot of students feel like this isn't what they want to do. And honestly, I 100% empathize with them. But unless you're planning on publishing a paper on AMPK, it's not important to commit these terms to memory. Okay, good. Then I think we can keep talking about it. <laughs> so what does AMPK do? Um, well, you might have heard of ATP in the past. Here we go again. Okay, well, we're almost through the jungle here. So, so ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is a chemical that enables a bunch of different biochemical reactions to occur. So like muscles contracting, the creation of new chemicals, even neurons firing impulses all use ATP. All of this to say it's a pretty important molecule. Okay, I'm convinced. And I was just kidding. I absolutely know what ATP is. I mean, come on. Come on. I know everything. Okay. And it's come up before. Good. Okay. Well, um, given that it's a pretty important molecule, 
and uh, we're pretty complicated organisms, we humans, our cells evolved um, to have a kind of sensor to make sure we don't run out of ATP. And I probably don't have to tell you, given how familiar you are with ATP, (laughs) we create ATP from eating food, preferentially carbohydrates and things like fruit or bread or pasta or stuff like that. Or gummy bears. Yes, plenty of carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates, that is, and things like gummy bears. Um, And so anyways, if, if you've eaten any carbohydrates, your body, your cells will burn them first to create ATP and then fat and then protein. And so a major way we can begin uh, to start burning fats is when AMP kinase, AMPK or AMPK, becomes activated. So uh, you can think of this thing as, you know, what gets activated when fuel is low. Uh, But in addition to activating fat burning to make up for the deficit of carbohydrate sources of fuel, it also activates a process called autophagy. Okay. So why don't we finish this nitty gritty part of the conversation (laughs) on that? What is autophagy? Yeah. Um, okay. We'll, we'll get to the candidates after this. So, so autophagy broadly just means that parts of a cell are dissembled and either recycled or eliminated. It's autophagy. And, you know, phage comes from a bunch of different old school languages, but it basically just means to, to eat. So it means that a cell eats itself. Sort of. I mean, yeah. So, so, but it turns out that this other activity of AMK activating autophagy may very well explain at least some of what has made metformin enticing as a potential strategy to extend life and even health span. Okay. Back to metformin. Is this effect on AMK why researchers are so interested in it to extend how long we live? Well, I mean, so the evidence of how precisely it's yielded these compelling results are still murky. Um, but another effect of metformin that's been highlighted is how it regulates global DNA, <laughs> DNA methylation in a way that regulates metabolism in general, um, but also in a way that may inhibit the growth of cancers. Well, that sounds beneficial. Yeah, right. So, so I should say that the study literally came out last year. Even though metformin is a super old medication. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so, yeah. And, and I think that's at least in part due to the fact that for a long time, it was relegated to just treating type 2 diabetes. But, um, and let's talk about this next, the building evidence that it's helpful in extending lifespan in a bunch of experiments uh, uh, by different groups. So there's just more attention to studying how it's doing that, you mean? I mean, I can't know for sure, but it would make sense. Okay. Well, let's get to these other studies. <laughs> All right. Well, well, a lot of these studies are done in a variety of different animal models. And so, you know, we're talking worms, flies, mice, rats, and even nematodes. Nematodes? <laughs> nematodes. So C. elegans are really what they're called, to be specific. Okay. Nematodes it is. <laughs> okay. So good. Um, and then there are some clinical trials in humans going on as well. But anyways, to get started, metformin treatment has extended uh, the lifespan of worms and mice. And um, the studies in mice were unsurprisingly a little bit more informative than those in simpler organisms. And so it, it extended the life and health span of the equivalent of middle-aged male mice, um, as well as in mice that are prone to developing cancer, like genetically. It slightly extended the lifespan of a female mice, but had no significant effect on standard rats. So female mice and standard rats. I assume that just means that there's nothing unique about them. They're not young or old or predisposed to cancer. Yeah, that's right. They're, you know, just run-of-the-mill mice or rats. And, uh, and there are a bunch of other studies, um, but suffice it to say that there is enough evidence in these preclinical models for a group to do a meta-analysis on 53 studies of metformin in patients with type 2 diabetes, which showed that the patients who received metformin had significantly lower all-cause mortality than non-diabetics. And there was enough evidence um, for a group in Singapore to test whether there was any relationship between uh, metformin prescription and cognitive impairment, and they found that there was an inverse association. An inverse relationship, meaning that metformin use was correlated with lower incidences of problems with cognition. In patients with type 2 diabetes, yeah. Which I'm guessing is an important distinction. I mean, it might be. So because, you know, while the Singaporean group found this inverse um, correlation, a group just a bit to the north in Taiwan found that... You know, Taiwan is like more than just a bit... to the north right like it's like a thousand miles away (laughs) (laughs) okay sure okay just a fair bit to the north listen i'm just trying to keep you accurate (laughs) and i appreciate that um all right so anyways a group halfway around the planet in taiwan found that um at a 12-year follow-up um patients who received metformin had a higher risk of parkinson's um, along with increased risks of all-cause dementia risk of alzheimer's and vascular dementia Okay, well, that's basically the opposite of what this group in Singapore found. <laughs> right, and, and, you know, further complicating things, a study showed that the use of metformin proved beneficial for the cognitive function in patients who were diagnosed with Huntington's disease. 
did another group find that it was counterintuitive <laughs> or counterproductive? Right, right. Uh, not that I know of, but but you're right. And, you know, and there's clearly a need for more studies like this to get not only a better idea of whether this medication might be beneficial for cognitive impairment associated uh, with aging. Any idea of why there was this kind of variability? I mean, it's tough to know. Um, so different patient groups from different parts of the world treated by different doctors, you know. Um, you know, the, the studies were also conducted according to slightly different protocols, but we're fortunately in luck. There are two clinical trials, one happening right now, the other completed that are focused on evaluating whether or not there might be benefits for aging in general. So one is called the Metformin in Longevity Study, or MILES, um, and the other is the Targeting Aging with Metformin, or TAME trial. <laughs> so TAME and MILES. That's MILES right. MILES and TAME. Yeah. And, and the MILES trial is focused on whether metformin will successfully restore gene expression in older people who have impaired glucose tolerance, while the TAME trial is the first randomized controlled clinical trial that will just straight up test whether metformin works as an anti-aging drug. So if one of the trials is completed, uh, do we know what the results are? Not yet. Um, they're still evaluating the data. And the principal investigator is gearing up for the TAME trial. Um, what's interesting about this work, though, is that because the NIH doesn't consider aging to be a disease... I guess that's kind of an interesting point. I mean, I didn't think of aging as a disease either. Yeah, and so that's sort of an argument that's come out of the anti-aging uh, researcher community, and who, by the way, sometimes refer to this field as geroscience. <laughs> I've heard of geoscience. Well, I mean, it's a lot like that, but it's focused on emphasizing research into the understanding uh, of links between aging and the onset of dementia. Think, you know, think geriatric and science. Um, I, I don't know what that this is precisely how they came up with it, but, but I'm pretty sure it's a portmanteau of geriatrics and science. Okay. Uh, but I don't think you know what geoscience means. Of course I know what it means, but we're not here to talk about geoscience and I wanted to move on. Okay, sure. We'll just go ahead and move on. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how does the fact that the NIH doesn't consider aging to be a disease play into metformin research? So, yeah. So, so the main reason it matters is because the NIH won't fund this clinical trial. So I assume they just have to find funding from elsewhere. That's right. And clinical trials are extremely expensive. So all human research is, is extremely expensive, but clinical trials in particular. So, you know, they're going to have to raise somewhere in the ballpark of $50 million, which, you know, isn't exactly a small amount of money. No kidding. Yeah. So, so you know, but I won't be surprised if he's successful or, or perhaps already raised this money. You know, I'd be surprised if this trial doesn't take place because much of the field is very excited about the prospects of metformin. And so, you know, before we move on from metformin, which outside of caloric restriction seems to be the most widely and thoroughly studied candidate for life extension, I think it's worth touching on scientists and physicians who are skeptical that metformin will prove uh, to be what this community is looking for. Well, that sounds like a good idea, particularly if anyone was planning on running out and finding some metformin to take. Exactly. So um, a group at the University of Illinois at um, Urbana-Champaign published a paper earlier this year that's literally titled Taming Expectations of Metformin as a Treatment to Extend Lifespan. Well, it sounds appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Tame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and it's worth to read for anybody, you know, who's interested in getting aside of the metformin argument that can be a bit more difficult to come by. And so, you know, I won't go into all the details of the arguments that they make, but one of the kind of foundational ones um, that they highlight is stated, at least in part, by this quote. Quote, if the goal of a treatment is to extend health span, the treatment must start before any chronic diseases are present, thereby delaying the onset of the first age-related chronic disease. End quote. So it sounds like they're emphasizing a focus on health span rather than just lifespan. Yeah, and a fair amount of their argument stems from the fact that almost all of the evidence in favor of the use of metformin is derived from studies in folks who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes rather than in people who are free of disease. And so they split up the human lifespan into two broad stages, a period free of disease, when we tend to be younger, and then a period of progressing age-associated disease and disability. And so they're supportive of the work that's going on with metformin, but they're making the argument that we also ought to be working on figuring out ways to begin optimizing health before any age-associated disease ever presents itself. That's fair enough, I guess. Uh, but it sort of feels like they're not necessarily saying that metformin isn't likely to do the thing that extends lifespan or even health span but that we should also uh, be working on things that would be good to start taking or doing when we're young. That's part of what they argue, yeah. Um, but then they start going into the evidence that has um, prompted much of the work on metformin. And so, you know, first they highlight um, the fact that we still don't really know how metformin works. <laughs> Which we kind of talked about with the MK and auto autophagy, sorry, <laughs> and all of that, the yeah. autophagy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure some people say autophagy, but um, so exactly. Um, and um, they get into a variety of other effects of metformin on things like the electron transport chain and a variety of other targets. Right. 
which seems like a fair argument to me. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And, and you know, they're very um, even-handed about this issue, acknowledging that they, that, you know, having a variety of biological effects may be exactly what we'll need in a molecule that's intended to help us live for longer. I mean, it's not like there's an aging center of the body. You know, it's entirely possible that there um, is a variety of processes in, in the body that will need to be tweaked to prevent them from beginning to deteriorate as we age. Well, that's an interesting argument. I mean, it does kind of make sense. Totally. Um, but, but still, even if it does work, we won't know definitively why. Is that it? Unfortunately not. So metformin is also not effective in everyone. And so in uh, the few studies that have been done in people who aren't diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you know, like the folks who were given um, four months of metformin at 1,000 milligrams. Or one gram. Right. AKA so, one gram. <laughs> right. So, so four months of one gram of metformin per day in people who had uh, an acute heart attack didn't show any benefits of reducing the onset of diabetes or reducing the incidence of subsequent cardiovascular events. And then another study evaluated if 18 months of 1.7 grams of metformin per day in people around 63 years old without diabetes did improve on some of their biology, mostly insulin-related stuff. No surprise there. Yeah, that's right. Um, but they didn't have any improvements in um, intima media thickness, which, which is basically a marker of plaque um, building up on the inside of arteries, which can eventually result in coronary heart disease, peripheral artery disease, um, carotid artery disease, or angina. You know... I've always heard that word, <laughs> angina. <laughs> Sorry for my immature giggle, <laughs> but I've never known what it means. Um, so it basically means that there is this unpleasant um, pressure or, or pain in the chest due to reduced blood flow to the heart. And um, you know, all of these basically result in impeding blood flow, which can be associated with heart attack or stroke. Uh, got it. So metformin was good for insulin-related stuff, the kind of stuff related to diabetes, but that was about it. Yeah, so that's right. And and those other things are also age-associated diseases. And, you know, so that's pretty meaningful. Um, another study was interested to see if metformin could help prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes. Well, that seems reasonable. After all, that is what it's, you know, usually used to treat. Right. And so that um, 1.7 grams per day for 18 months did result in 31% lower progression to type 2 diabetes. However, another group in the study, which had, you know, just lifestyle interventions, had a 58% lower progression. Oh, I see. So just doing things like exercising and changing diet and, you know, all that boring stuff <laughs> <laughs> was more effective than metformin. Yeah, um, that's right. And so, you know, it's not meaningless, but, but even when it came to diabetes specifically, it didn't seem to be the best alternative available. And so the final challenge um, that they highlight to the use of metformin for extending life was the question of whether it's effective in both young and older people. Um, and so they bring up this, um, you know, due to a concept called antagonistic pleiotropy. All right. Well, obviously, <laughs> you know, I'm going to ask you what that means. <laughs> so, I mean, it's much simpler than it sounds. It's a theory from 1957 that suggests that the force of natural selection tends to favor genes that enhance fitness and health early in life, but actually reduce them later in life. So basically, it's that the genes that we have might be good when we're younger, but actually bad to have when we get older. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the idea. And so, you know, if that's the case, it's very possible that the treatments that prove to be effective in the elderly, since we tend to treat diseases when they show up rather than before they appear, um, and, and, you know, and since metformin alters gene expression, that could be a pretty big deal. Got it. So is there evidence either way? Um, so, yes, there is. Um, but, but the short story is that there do seem to be some age-related differences in response. So, you know, just one example is that metformin seemed to delay the development of type 2 diabetes by 44%, but had no effect in people over the age of 60. And there was more variability in how older study participants responded, um, with, you know, some ending up worse following metformin treatment than just placebo. Well, that's kind of strange, right? Yeah, I mean, it is a little surprising to me, yeah. Um, but, but it turns out that the most common age range diagnosis, um, you know, the most common age of diagnosis for type 2 diabetes is between 45 to 64. Um, so it, seem, you know, it seems that the majority of people who are likely to receive metformin do so before they reach the age that didn't seem to respond favorably or perhaps, you know, responded badly to metformin. Okay, so I guess that makes sense. I guess I just sort of assumed it, you know, came on later, um, but I never really thought about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I honestly thought the same. Um, but anyway, so for that reason, along with a few things we, you know, didn't even talk about, like, you know, a finding from studies done uh, by this group at Urbana-Champaign performed um, that, that you know, a combination of metformin and exercise resulted in a reduction in improvements in muscle and cardiovascular health in people um, that, that people usually get from exercise. You know, so like that, for example, made this group suggest that perhaps the life extension and geroscience communities might 
not put all their hopes on metformin. Man, that would be super irritating <laughs> if I did a bunch of exercise and a drug I was taking stopped me from actually getting literally the only improvement <laughs> that I'm exercising for in the first place. Okay, so I don't have all my hopes on metformin. Uh, we have a bit more time and we still have to get to that drama. <laughs> but do you think the rest of the possible life extenders can fit in the remaining time? That we I'll have? do my best. And, and if we do go on too long, we'll, we'll just split up the conversation. Okay, sounds good. All right, so, well, Metformin gave us a sort of framework for how to think about what the rest of these candidates might be doing, but with slightly different biochemical targets and largely without the effects on insulin-related signaling. So, what do they do? Well, we're going to have to talk about another nitty-gritty thing, but this time it's not an acronym. Sirtuins. All right, I suppose I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, good. So, sirtuins are a group of enzymes that are super evolutionarily conserved. And by that, you mean uh, a lot of different... Animals have sirtuins? <laughs> yeah, that, right? no, that's exactly right. And, you know, uh, generally, and this isn't always the case, but it's generally the case that if something is present in everything from yeast to humans, it plays a pretty important role in survival. And why is that? Well, I mean, imagine, you know, while you were a microscopic bundle of cells, that the genes that encode your hair color underwent some wild mutation and you grew purple hair. Okay, you're painting a picture for me. Right. And so, you know, and keep in mind that we're, you know, being completely hypothetical, but you'd have come. Uh, to term as a healthy baby girl who would happen to just start growing purple hair, right? It would be interesting and unique, but you'd survive. Got it. Okay. So that would be a mutation that may or may not happen, but it wouldn't compromise your ability to survive. However, if instead that mutation occurred in the sequences that encode your ribosomes or the muscle cells that compose your heart, any deviation could potentially compromise the activities of those pretty fundamental life-sustaining activities. So those mutations couldn't be passed on because the offspring that would carry those mutations probably couldn't survive. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they couldn't pass on those changes to those genes to the next generation of offspring, right? Yeah, so that's exactly the point. And so when it comes to sirtuins, everything from yeast to flies to mice to humans have them. They do a bunch of different things, but the most research that's been done focused on, on sirtuins revolves around aging, and specifically metabolism, genomic regulation, cell proliferation, cancer biology, and apoptosis, which, by the way, is one of those words that seems to have been devised by a troll of some sort. What are we talking about here? <laughs> I mean, where's the trollery? So apoptosis, oftentimes produced, uh, pronounced apoptosis, more often than not, in fact, quite often, uh, uh, often enough that uh, the people who pronounce it as it was initially described come across as either snooty or completely ignorant. Spell it for me. Okay, so uh, A-P-O-P-T-O-S-I-S. -S. Okay, I get it. There's clearly an extra P in there. Yeah, okay. And there's this whole explanation related to the Greek term for the dropping or falling off of petals from flowers or leaves from a tree. But, but yeah, there's a sneaky P in there. And it's one of those words which, if you're in biology, you, you just can't win with. Got it. Anyway. Yeah, okay. So anyways, apoptosis is the process by which cells die. There's a variety of ways by um, which it happens. But broadly speaking, something either binds receptors on the cell that begins the biochemical process by which the cell will eventually die or by mitochondria releasing a, you know, various signals that ultimately result in the cell dying. Those two routes to cell death are called the extrinsic, which is when something binds receptors on the cell, or intrinsic, which is when the mitochondria within the cells release the signals. Okay, so apoptosis... <laughs> You can say apoptosis. Nobody, I don't think everybody cares. <laughs> apoptosis can either begin from within the cell or from outside of the cell. Got it. And I can kind of see why this would be important to aging, but connect the dots for me. Right. So um, so some of those sirtuins um, that we were talking about, those highly evolutionarily conserved sirtuins, happen to be located in the mitochondria. And evidence suggests that some of them may participate in apoptosis signaling. Okay. Dots connected. Now, this part of our conversation brings us to the drama between various academics and companies. Ooh, science gossip. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Um, like, you know, here are some of the titles of the articles on the drama. Uh, dietary supplements, Nobel or Ig Nobel. Or um, uh, more on the supposed youth pill. Or the weird business behind a trendy anti-aging pill. Or my favorite, the life extension death match. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, and one subheading was 
Uh, quote, why did seven Nobel laureates associate with a company that markets an unproven dietary supplement, especially at a time when the integrity and reproducibility of bioscience research is questioned? And so, you know, the articles range from just straight up documenting events uh, to snarky skepticism. But the competition revolves around two general categories of supplements. And so one is purported to activate the sirtuin signaling system, and the other is intended to increase um, levels of a biochemical called NAD, NAD, or, or nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. Well, so much for avoiding more acronyms. <laughs> hey, okay, okay, this is a podcast about biology. And, you know, we biologists love our acronyms and our initialisms. But anyways, again, it doesn't really matter what the names of these things are for the purposes of this conversation. But you can think of um, NAD as a kind of biochemical energy pathway that's sort of similar to ATP. I mean, you know, they're different in, in, in very important ways and they interact with each other. Um, but they're both important in the reactions that power cells. ATP and AD energy in cells. Got it. <laughs> okay. Now, um, one of the main characters in this drama now enters the stage. Uh, interest in the relationship between NAD signaling and aging was sort of catapulted to prominence when a publication from a scientist who developed prominence in the mid-2000s from his research on a molecule called resveratrol, um, which his work showed uh, seemed to induce anti-aging activities in yeast and mice. And so if resveratrol sounds familiar to anyone, it might be because it's been one of the primary arguments in favor of some of the benefits of eating things like blueberries, pistachios, and most famously, red wine. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I remember reading about that. I mean, I remember seeing a bunch of articles about why red wine is good for you. You know, which is always a pet peeve um, among biomedical scientists because there will inevitably be studies that disprove those overly broad claims, which has indeed happened with a study in JAMA uh, showing the diets ha um, that happen to be enriched with foods that have high levels of resveratrol correlate with no significant effects on a lifespan or health span. But anyways, um, those are the kind of claims that I'm sure the scientist about whom we're speaking would likely never make himself. And that scientist is... David Sinclair, who's a professor at, um, at the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Center for Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School. He also happens to be an officer of the Order of Australia, which seems to my naive American eyes to be sort of like the Australian equivalent of being knighted in England, which, you know, it's just one of many recognitions he's received. I mean, the, the list is long. It's quite long. Uh, but what might be most striking to folks outside of science who see a picture of him, of him is likely his age. What do you mean? Is he super young? Well, I mean, I suppose, sort of, given how many recognitions he's received. But, but no, I mean by his appearance. And so um, here, why don't we do this? So I'm going to show Bo a picture of David Sinclair that was taken just a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. So how old do you think he looks? Like in his late 30s. Okay. <laughs> um, well, he's 50 years old this year. <laughs> um, but seems to, to, to me, at least, to be at least 10 years younger, which is, of course, not evidence that he's right about how to stave off aging. But, it, you know, it is one of those things that seems relevant, given the fact that he's a founder of one of the companies embroiled in this little drama. Okay. You know what happened is he is taking one of these pills. Yeah. And he's just not telling anybody yet. Oh, no, he, he is. I mean, <laughs> he, he literally is taking the pills, plus metformin. And he has told people. Oh, okay. But the question, <laughs> but, uh, but and he does a bunch of other stuff too. Um, you know, he's been interviewed a bunch of different places. You know, he like makes his own yogurt and he exercises a certain kind of way. Um, so he's doing a bunch of different stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, it is just one of those things like, oh, this guy studies aging and he looks like he's like a generation younger. <laughs> so where's his blog? Where's his lifestyle blog? I <laughs> yeah, want right. to learn how to make his yogurt. I don't know. He's a tenured professor at Harvard, so <laughs> I'm not sure he has a lifestyle blog. Uh, but anyways, yeah, we'll, we'll get deeper into this. So so he, he evidently founded and co-founded multiple companies. Um, but the one that's relevant here is actually called Elysium. Hmm. For some reason, Elysium sounds like something out of a... You know what? It is a movie, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie. Yeah, yeah. So, so the one with Matt Damon. Right. And, and so Sinclair founded this company alongside a scientist from MIT named Dr. Leonard uh, Gorente, or, or Guarente, um, who, like David Sinclair, rose to prominence from his research of the mechanisms of aging in simple organisms. In fact, David Sinclair worked in the Guarente, so I don't know if I'm mispronouncing uh, his last name, but it's like, it looks almost like guarantee, but it's Guarente. And um, they, together, were the pioneers of the hypothesis that connected caloric restriction to anti-aging effects, as well as sirtuins in the early 90s. And we said that caloric restriction is one of the most widely studied methods to achieve anti-aging effects. That's right. So they've kind of been at this, you know, in this field for quite a long time now. 
Yeah, um, that's right. And so they founded um, Elysium together. And as far as I know, the company isn't interested in, um, you know, forming a, a post-apocalyptic space colony for people who can afford to blast off the planet. I mean, at least it hasn't publicly stated that much, but um, the company has encountered quite a bit of skepticism and controversy from the broader scientific community. Well, judging from the titles of the articles, that seems pretty clear. Yeah, and so and that's part of the drama to which I referred earlier, but not the whole story. So, David Sinclair originally showed that by reversing the natural decline in the levels of NAD that occurs in aging and everything from mice to humans, measures of metabolism and health seem to indicate a slowing of the aging process. Around that same time, other studies showed that supplementing with nicotinamide riboside, which is a form of vitamin B3, is capable of boosting levels of NAD. And I assume that there's some relationship between Sinclair and the nicotinamide riboside. <laughs> nicotinamide riboside, yeah. So I'm getting there. So um, around the time that Sinclair was publishing, a company named Chromadex came out with a way to make nicotinamide riboside, and they started selling it to a variety of supplement companies. And a new company enters the stage. That's exactly right. And so, so now Elysium had started selling a product called Basis, which was nicotinamide riboside plus another supplement called terostilbean, which is sort of like resveratrol, found in grapes and blueberries as well, though at lower concentrations. And so like resveratrol, terostilbean has antioxidant activity, and it's been highlighted as potentially anti-inflammatory. It seems to be cardio and neuroprotective and, um, and so on, right? It hasn't been quite as widely studied as resveratrol, but they're often discussed within the same papers and seem to share some biochemistry. And in fact, I mean, the molecular structures of these two supplements are, are nearly indistinguishable, with two hydroxyl groups in resveratrol substituted for methoxy groups in terastilbene. I'm going to go ahead and assume that it's not particularly important for folks to know what hydroxyl and methoxy are, <laughs> and just assume that you're emphasizing how similar the molecules are. Yeah, yeah. So that's the point. Um, these are similar molecules. And terastilbene has one of those, you know, pterodactyl silent P's, by the way. It starts with a P, not a T. Okay, got it. <laughs> so Chromadex was making the nicotinamide riboside. Nailed it. And Elysium <laughs> was including that, plus this terostilbene. That's right. And so in fact, Chromadex licensed a patent in 2011 to synthesize nicotinamide riboside in lab settings, rather than having to purify it from milk, which is how it used to be um, derived. And so they sold it under the name Niagen. They also established about 70 agreements with universities and research institutions, and seem to be basically the main game in town, if not the only game in town, for folks who are um, becoming increasingly interested in the molecule for um, various conditions. Then, Chromadex, again, the company that was basically the supplier of the molecule, became interested in focusing on whether nicotinamide riboside might be useful for a rare genetic disease called Cockaine Syndrome. Definitely never heard of Cockaine Syndrome. So what is that? Well, it's, what it's like is a lot like aging. And so um, premature aging, to be specific. But, you know, there, there's a variety of other symptoms beyond just the premature aging. And so, in fact, when it was first described, it was compared to progeria. Uh, okay, so I've heard of progeria. That's the condition um, I, that I think I knew of as premature aging. Yeah, and so both are, are a bit more complicated than just premature aging. You know, both have, an, have uh, additional symptoms. You know, it's not just premature aging. And, and both fall under a broader set of um, conditions called progerioid, uh, progerioid uh, syndromes, all of which share that feature of, of things that seem a lot like premature aging. But, but anyways, this was the condition for which Chromadex, the nicotinamide su supplier, um, thought they might test their product for. Um, and in fact, they're even focused on getting FDA approval for this, all while continuing to sell nicotinamide riboside to various supplement companies, including Elysium. So is Elysium doing something similar, like getting FDA approval for stuff? So that's one of the things that distinguishes the two companies. I remember like three or four years ago, several of my relatives emailed me asking if they all ought to be taking this stuff. And I was in the thick of my thesis project, which has had essentially nothing to do with these molecules other than sounding a bit like nicotine. Okay, right. Really quick. Is there any relationship between nicotine and nicotinamide uh, revive, riboside? <laughs> <laughs> or is that just a frustrating quirk of chemistry naming? <laughs> uh, no, uh, not really. So, so certainly not pharmacologically. And so again, nicotinamide, um, it's also called niacinamide, by the way, is a form of vitamin B and it gets converted to NAD like we talked about before. And so nicotine is just nicotine. Um, the stuff in, you know, cigarettes and e-cigs and cigars and hookahs and so on. They share some molecular components, but there's really no good reason to equate the two. So they're not related. Uh, it's just a quirk of chemistry naming. Got it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not every day that several of my relatives independently ask me about the same supplement. And so something about why they ask grabbed my attention. Uh, like 
you might live forever. <laughs> well, I mean, I suspect that's an easy way to grab most people's attention. Um, uh, for people in biomedical science, those of, of whom, uh, you know, have been jaded by the incremental progress we make in our research, it was almost enough to immediately say, no way, it's complete nonsense. However, there's something about Elysium that I think makes it a one-of-a-kind among self-described supplement companies. That thing is that there are seven Nobel laureates on the advisory board of the company, one of whom I have a personal, completely unrelated, story of my own, by the way. Ooh, okay, I see. So they have some serious scientific firepower associated with that company, or at least helping to market the company. Yes, that's exactly right. And so it remains unclear just how involved those Nobel laureates have been when it comes to uh, the management and the science that form the foundation upon which Elysium's claims are made. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the founders of the company aren't exactly junior scientists. Both are highly accomplished. You know, you don't have to get a Nobel Prize to be the real deal, right? David, David Sinclair and Leonard uh, Garante at Harvard and MIT, respectively, are, once again, pioneering and brilliant scientists. But I get what you're saying. Nobel laureates, MIT, Harvard, it's not your typical supplement company. Not by a long shot. And, um, you know, the distinctiveness of the company doesn't end there. Is there an astronaut? <laughs> no, you know, I haven't uh, thought to look, but I don't think so. Um, no, it's their business model and overall business strategy. So, According to Grandview Research, which is a marketing research consulting company, the global dietary supplements market is projected to reach over $278 billion by 2024. Uh, vitamin supplements specifically was over $50 billion in the United States alone. Oh, that's definitely bigger than I would have expected. Yeah, no kidding. And just to give you an idea, you know, I've seen various figures of the global pharmaceutical market as being a bit over um, one trillion dollars, which, you know, don't get me wrong, that's gargantuan. But then again, it's the pharmaceutical industry. You know, whether folks are unsatisfied with the way they're regulated or run, they are regulated and they do have to run clinical trials, which, according to a study in JAMA, is estimated to cost between two and three billion dollars, uh, though it varies a bit depending on how many patients are involved and in the trial and how long it has to go on before it's over. And that's per potential medication, many of which fail. And I imagine that supplement companies aren't exactly doing clinical trials. That's exactly right. So, you know, imagine you're a scientist, a rather successful scientist, a geneticist, in fact, who's risen to prominence by a series of discoveries into some of the fundamental biology underlying aging. Okay, you're painting a picture for me again. That's right. Um, so, you know, you've made these discoveries and you come to suspect that a pretty benign substance, one that's never shown any significant side effects and one that's recently become quite a bit cheaper to obtain, might be quite effective in extending human life. I think I see where you're going with this. Now, you can try and raise all those billions of dollars for this project, which of course is going to be incredibly difficult to convince the FDA of as valid. After all, you're going to need to run this trial with thousands and thousands of people for long enough to demonstrate that their lives have been extended. Which I'm guessing is even longer than your standard clinical trials. Much longer. Now, an alternative would be to pick something other than longevity. Which sounds like what Chromadex was doing. It seems that way, yeah, yeah. Or you could get a little creative. All right, let's get creative. Okay, so so here's a quote from from an article about this whole situation, and Leonard uh, Garante, one of the the founders of the, of the company, was published in um, Boston Globe. A relevant paper, given that both MIT and Harvard are in Boston slash Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, so so here it goes. Quote, to differentiate themselves from other providers, Elysium engaged um, a highly regarded researcher, MIT's Leonard Garante, as scientific founder and the public face of the company. Garante made important discoveries about um, aging in yeast and was frustrated by unsuccessful efforts to develop anti-aging drugs through FDA approval. Seeking another path, he and Elysium recruited seven Nobel laureates to advise and lend their names. With Nobelists on board, additional outstanding scientists became advisors. Using sophisticated advertising and social media, the company sells bases directly to consumers, promoting vague health benefits linked to the glow of scientific stars. I see. So they were sidestepping the whole clinical trials process by selling the product as a supplement directly to people rather than marketing it as a drug. That's right. But there was something else in that quote that seemed kind of important. It sounds like Garante wasn't really a true founder of the company, that he was the scientific founder. So do we know who founded the company? Yeah, well done. And so that's another thing that almost every single article on the company fails to highlight. But this one, and it's Jeffrey Flyer, by the way, at the Boston Globe, who's a distinguished service professor and former dean at Harvard Medical School. So, so he says that Elysium is backed by top-tier venture capital. And I did a little bit of Google sleuthing, and by a little, I mean a little. <laughs> but 
I haven't read this in any articles. Ooh, a Wired to be Weird exclusive. Okay, so I, I wouldn't go that far, but um, the folks that seem to be the founders are from Boston, one of whom has an MBA, and both had worked in finance at places like Bain Capital, Deloitte, Sequoia Capital, and J.P. Morgan before founding Elysium. Now, perhaps there's much more to the story here, but neither seem to have much of a background in biomedical science. And, you know, it's not unusual for companies like this to have CEOs and COOs, which are, you know, the position um, that these folks occupy. But being the founders who, at least according to Jeffrey Flyer, engaged Leonard Garante, which at least implies that they were the original founders who came to him with the idea. I guess I see what you mean. So it wasn't like the two age scientists decided to start a company based on their research. Or at least it doesn't appear to be that way. So maybe it was some guys who saw an opportunity to try something new based on all the attention that these local scientists were getting for their discoveries. I mean, I can't be sure. Uh, I'm, of course, not a journalist. Um, But it's worth acknowledging that in addition to the innovation from the research of Sinclair and Garante that suggested nicotinamide and terastilbene may have some as of yet unproven or at least incompletely proven efficacy in in, um, extending human health and lifespan. Another point of innovation is the business model, which may be the only way that an endeavor like this could be undertaken. How do you mean? Like, why might it be the only way? Because of the cost and duration of a clinical trial for something like this? Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the motto of the company is, quote, life healthier for longer through extraordinary science. A fairly vague and general motto. So several journalists uh, agree with that, and it's kind of not so subtly implying that their products are designed to help you live healthier and longer, but as Karen Weintraub, who's definitely among the most skeptical of the journalists who cover Elysium, so as she quotes, or as she notes, (laughs) quote, as of 2017, all the science was still in mice, and there is no evidence that it helped a single person live healthier for longer, or at least not yet, end quote. Not yet. I mean, it's just sort of implying that they're going to keep doing their academic research while they sell their product, right? Or is there something more specific? Well, yeah, so it implies a former, um, that they're selling their products while the scientists continue doing science. Um, However, there's at least one more thing that distinguishes Elysium from almost every other uh, major supplement company out there. And what is that? Well, so here's how Jeffrey Flyer at the Boston Globe puts it, and and I'm paraphrasing, Um, quote, Uh, Why have such distinguished advisors allowed Elysium to use their reputations for promotion? There there are two narratives for the company. Either the company is just selling supplements in an underregulated and evidence-free environment, leveraging the reputations of great scientists and overstates the narrative about clinical trials for marketing purposes, prioritizing sales over health efficacy. Alternatively, they're reforming the supplement industry by engaging great scientists and performing rigorous tests to establish or refute health benefits. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I mean, either the company sees an opportunity to make far more profit early on by working in the supplement industry rather than the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and really just using the Nobel laureates to rise above the competition, or maybe they are trying something new, like a new way to fund a growing company that depends on ongoing research. Yeah, so that's exactly it. And by the way, if they have, you know, even an incremental effect on the supplement industry pushing others to elevate their standards, that, you know, that's certainly worth something. And so, is there not any evidence in humans? So as of the publication of all of those articles, that was the case, yes. However, earlier this year, Elysium's product, Basis, was tested in a small phase one clinical trial in people with ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like they're making progress towards going down a more honorable route. Well, well right. you know, it's hard to say for sure. So, so this was just a four-month trial. But to quote Patrick Waite from the University Clinic in Bonn, Germany, quote, It is remarkable and encouraging to see that the investigators report a clinical improvement in the ALS patients and not just a slowing of progression of this devastating disease. And then he later says, quote, Findings like these urgently require independent confirmation, end quote. So like a good scientist, expecting multiple groups to do the same thing. And just to be sure, ALS is the condition that Stephen Hawking suffered from, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's also called Lou Gehrig's disease. And and Waite uh, also highlighted some of the shortcomings with the clinical trial. So, you know, the study was very small, only 15 participants receiving Elysium's product, while 17 received placebo, and it didn't last very long, right? So, you know, uh, four months, and there was a 38% dropout rate. I assume a dropout rate is basically the percentage of participants that didn't finish the full four months. 
Yeah, um, though, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, of the 12 participants who dropped out of the study, five withdrew before it even started. So, you know, it was only seven who dropped out after starting treatment, and only three of them were actually receiving Elysium's product. So, you know, while that's a pretty large dropout rate, it doesn't necessarily indicate much at all about the effects of the product. And so anyway, stipulating all the limitations of the study, as well as some issues with how the data were processed, that, you know, there's enough reason for other groups to be interested in evaluating if it might be beneficial for folks diagnosed with ALS. And I guess that sort of goes without saying that ALS isn't really the same thing as aging or extending lifespan. That's right. And so, um, so, so the, the last thing that's worth noting, and this is the latest development in the drama surrounding Elysium, is that Chromadex, who, if you remember, has a patent on the production of nicotinamide riboside. Well, guess which companies are now embroiled in a lengthy series of lawsuits over things like patent infringement? Ah, I'm going to make a wild guess. <laughs> Chromadex and Elysium. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, there was recently some studies that were done here in Philly at the Worcester Institute, which is basically right across the street from where my lab is, showing that supplementation with NAD precursors, of which you'll remember nicotinamide riboside is one, promoted cancer growth in animal models. Well, that does not sound like ideal at all <laughs> from the perspective of Elysium or Chromadex. No kidding. But regardless, Elysium is moving forward with a larger phase two trial, and they're working with the Mayo Clinic, and Chromadex is doing their own studies, focused on cognition in 40 older adults in Florida. And Chromadex has raised $25 million in investments, with revenue jumping up quite a bit and their stock value tripling. And Elysium, in 2016, had raised $26 million, and of course continues generating revenue via their supplement strategy. So none of this drama seems to be slowing either group down. Doesn't seem like it. By the way, and I, I know that you know we're going along here, but do we know how they ended up with all those Nobel prizes? You know, Nobel Prize winners behind their brand. Um, yeah, that's an interesting part of the story, and I'm only getting this from some interviews that Sarah Jang um, from Wired conducted. But it sounds like there is a bit of a domino effect where uh, one Nobel laureate. One particularly famous and influential Nobel laureate, around whom my personal story revolves, by the way, contacted some friends. And got them on board as well. That's right. And so, you know, we focused on the Nobel laureates. Um, but, but there are over a dozen additional scientists associated with the company as well, from places like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and the Mayo Clinic. And so, you know, here's what um, Mayor Stamfer, who's a professor at Harvard's medical school, said about um, how he joined, according to Sarah Jang. Quote, he told me he had originally gotten a call from Marco Tulli. Um, and so just not the quote, but he's one of the initial founders. Uh, okay, back to the quote. But was busy and not interested. Then he got a call from Eric Kandel, a Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist who has signed on as a scientific advisor to Elysium. I'm almost certain we've talked about Eric Kandel before, or if not, I've heard of him before. Yeah, so he's an extremely influential neuroscientist. I mean, he literally wrote the book that tons and tons of neuroscience majors read in college, including me, by the way, at least for a part of it. Um, so here's a quote from Stanford, the Harvard Medical School professor Sarah Jang was interviewing, referring to Eric Kandel. Quote, he's one of my heroes. When I was in college, I was thinking if I should go to graduate school and study with him. He basically reassured me, um, indeed, they really wanted to do solid work, and it wasn't, you know, a fly-by-night operation. So I said, okay, I'm in. End quote. I can imagine it might be tough to say no to a guy like Eric Kandel. I mean, I think that's true for many, many scientists. I mean, not only given the possible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to work alongside someone like Eric Kandel, but, but also the possibility to participate in a business with the goals and potential future of a company like Elysium. And there were other similar examples of, you know, senior scientists being recruited by Nobel laureates like David Moore, who's a professor of uh, molecular and cellular biology at uh, Baylor College of Medicine, my former institution, being recruited by Jack Shostrak. And hey, maybe they're sincerely interested in taking the more honorable road that we were talking about, you know, using the revenue from something that they know to be pretty safe in people to fund the kind of research that's super difficult to pull off. Yeah, I mean, that's right. We, um, we still don't uh, quite know how this is going to pan out. It's still too early to decide um, either way. But regardless, it's most definitely a new phenomenon in modern biomedical science. Well, are you taking Elysium or <laughs> Chromadex's products? I mean, I'm not. Um, though, if I had enough money that, you know, I wouldn't really feel the cost, I might consider it. Wow. Totally not what I expected you'd say. I figure you'd say what you always say. It's not worth the money. Your money's better spent on a good diet and sleep and so on. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's true. But Exercise. given how well tolerated these things are and given that we won't know just how effective these things are for a while, I'm not sure I'd rule it out. And what about metformin? No. I don't 
seen nearly enough evidence that it's effective for people who don't have diabetes or other diseases in extending life. I'm more convinced by the arguments made by the skeptics we discussed um, uh, on regarding metformin. However, despite how skeptical I am of all this, I'm still very optimistic that perhaps within our lifetimes, there may very well be some discoveries of molecules that accomplish the goals of groups like these, molecules that induce what they call hormesis. Ugh, okay, another <laughs> word right before we're wrapping up. Okay, so this one's easy. Um, it's just any process by which short-term exposure to a mild stressor induces a biological response that causes increased stress resistance and, therefore, life expectancy in organisms. Got it. Sort of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, yeah, that's basically it. And so there's there's kind of an underlying implicit um, philosophy that, you know, within the human body are opportunities to improve health and extend life if we could activate them without having to do the things that naturally activate them. Like starvation, for example. There's a reason that caloric restriction is associated with increased longevity. It activates the various biochemical factors we talked about. Well, those molecules obey the laws of physics just like dopamine does. And the only thing preventing us from activating them, like amphetamine activates dopamine, Dopamine signaling is knowledge that we're in the process of learning. Well, that's pretty optimistic. I mean, for sure. And it's not all that far-fetched. I mean, do you remember that TAME trial that we talked about when we were discussing metformin and how the NIH doesn't consider aging to be a disease? Of course. What about it? Well, the principal investigator on uh, that trial is also the co-PI in a grant that is funded by the NIH that's devoted to start mobilizing resources to bring the field of aging uh, research into a state that we'd call translational. And so translational means that instead of focusing entirely on either one specific disease or the nitty-gritty details of how metformin or any other medication or molecule acts in the body, you focus on developing, uh, you focus on research that is intended to develop some specific treatment or cure. So basically, it's focusing on research with the direct intention to discover ways to enable us to live longer. That's right. And so this grant includes partners across different countries, which will strengthen the results they generate. Because more people from more places means that their results will be less biased by only having certain people participate in their experiments. Yeah, so, so it's these kinds of steps that are likely to begin advancing the field of aging research or, or geroscience into a more sophisticated and versatile field. Rather than having different labs across disciplines working uh, independently, the NIH sees this as an initiative that will coordinate those fields from genetic, molecular, cellular, neurophysiological, and so on. And with more communication between these labs, as well as the prospect of funding that's devoted to supporting their work, I think we can be a bit more optimistic that within our lifetimes, we may have more than just a few threads to pull on that'll lead us to some more satisfying answers regarding everything from how we should live our lives, what foods to eat and not eat, and what exercise is the healthiest, and even what molecules might optimize our biologies to extend both our life and health spans. That sounds good, so long as pizza isn't taken off my <laughs> menu. I agree. All right, well, why don't we conclude here and maybe pick back up if any big news comes out? Uh, yeah, good idea. Um, and so, you know, there are other drugs and candidates for extending life and health span that we'll talk about in the future too, like telomerase and rapamycin, both of which are also at least as interesting. But until then, thanks very much for listening, everyone. And if you stuck it out this long, we'd love it if you could take a moment and give us a nice rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. So, uh, uh, you remember how I said I have a personal story with one of the Nobel laureates who's a, you know, an advisor to Elysium? Yeah, what's the deal? I, like uh, many ambitious young neuroscientists, have an Eric Kandel story, though mine is slightly less interesting uh, than one you know, devoted to the legitimacy of a company um, to which he's lent his name. Did Eric Kandel sign on to support your glass succulent planters? <laughs> okay, no, but he should, because they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one word to describe them. <laughs> yeah, it's the best word. Uh, no, so, so I have an Eric Kandel story from uh, the Society for Neuroscience meeting in 2017. Is the Society for Neuroscience the kind of meeting where a bunch of scientists get together and dress in black robes and masks and do a bunch <laughs> of sorcery while people chant strange incantations? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, thought so. But, so okay. Uh, no, that's not what we do. Um, I wish it were that cool, frankly. It's, it's more like a bunch of over-caffeinated, underslept, and occasionally hungover people, about 35,000 usually, meet in one city and discuss the interesting things on which they've worked over the past year. 
Oh, so kind of like a Comic-Con, but for <laughs> brain nerds. It's actually exactly like a Comic-Con for brain nerds. But so anyways, uh, the Society for Neuroscience Conference lasts several days. Each day has hundreds of presentations, posters and talks and so on. And and at the end of the day, when, you know, where I gave my own poster presentation, I packed all my stuff up and I was sitting at the entrance of a convention center in Washington, D.C., which is where the convention was, figuring out where I was going to go next. What do you mean, where are you going next? Wouldn't it just be to your hotel? Well, I mean, you know, when I say uh, that some of the folks are hungover during SFN, I, I kind of meet it. <laughs> I can't remember if it was that same night, but but one of the nights I went to a random bar near the convention center. I ordered a beer and just hung out for like five minutes. It was a great bar, by the way, really interesting beer, but hung out for like five minutes before a mass, like truly massive group of people who were obviously scientists invaded the bar. And how did you know they were scientists? Well, I mean, a bunch of them forgot to take off their SFN badges, you know, that identified their name and, and it's a an event you know which which with which they were associated okay that makes things easy <laughs> right so so most of this group uh, was from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota okay uh, that's pretty far from home yeah yeah so you know these are a bunch of people who attended the conference and you know people as from as far away as like China and Russia or Italy all over the place uh, come to the conference and so you know you know people attend from all, all over all over uh, the US for sure uh, but yeah so this big group of folks all came in at the same time and I was you know finishing up a beer I'd ordered sitting at the previously sparsely seated bar and then all of a sudden it was basically like boxed in by a bunch of Minnesotans yeah I mean the Mayo Clinic is in Minnesota yeah yeah so but I mean I feel like a place like the Mayo Clinic isn't necessarily like only populated by Minnesotans um, but but so uh, anyways um, one of the guides with whom I started a long conversation was actually from Australia okay so you had a long conversation yeah um, so okay so so I get boxed in uh, uh, by a bunch of Mayo Clinic people and here begins a conversation that lasts several hours <laughs> beginning with the advantages and disadvantages of various viral techniques I've used in my experiments but then ranges to science gossip to politics to critiques of science in general so, like, every conversation that people have at bars. <laughs> I mean, yeah, kind of. Uh, but but anyways, it was a super fun night. Okay, come on. How is this related to Eric Kandel? Okay, right, right, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, uh, before that epic conversation, and I'm pretty sure it was at the same, it was like the same night, I was sitting at the entrance of the convention center, sort of against a railing beside the, the stairway at the entrance, and there was a couple of few feet to my side who were just sort of seemed European. <laughs> seemed European. <laughs> European vibes. <laughs> How so? I mean, I, I don't know. They just gave off European vibe. All right, got it. <laughs> okay, so... I don't know how to tell you. But anyways, I'm sitting there. I'm looking at the Maps uh, app on my phone. And, you know, keep in mind, there's, like, no one around me beside this couple. Like, no one. It's totally empty for, like, I don't know, like, 100 feet. Except for just, like, like just the, you know, the couple and me. Uh, and then in my peripheral vision, I see a figure in a suit walking, you know, in my direction from the side where there's literally zero humans. Like, you know, there's the entrance where there's, you know, people are gathered. There's just total empty space. I'm sitting down. And then there's this Europe, uh, supposedly European couple sitting, you know, uh, several feet away from me. And then there's this suit coming, you know, out of nowhere. Like an assassin. <laughs> yeah, not quite that cool. But, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely strange enough for me to look up from my phone. I then noticed the guy is sort of limping. And, and he's sort of balding a bit. Okay, well, assassins sometimes wear costumes. I mean, it, it did. I honestly, that was one of my first thoughts. It did seem like the guy was wearing a costume. And so as I looked up, I noticed he was wearing a dark suit and a red bow tie. And basically zero people at SFN wear bow ties, except for like one particularly famous neuroscientist. Neuroscientist assassin. Well, I mean, I can't be sure. <laughs> but it turned out to be Eric Kandel, the Nobel, Nobel laureate. He sort of shuffles towards me and walks by, seemingly coming out of nowhere like a superhero. You know, forgetting to snap a picture as he walked by me, I looked agog to my side at the, you know, supposed European couple, and they returned the same exact expression. You know, he just sort of like shuffled towards a large group of scientists and was rapidly, you know, mobbed by SFN attendees. But I'll just never forget how it seemed like he just sort of like appeared out of nowhere, like a nerdy X-Man or something. <laughs> he apparated. <laughs> <laughs> apparated, yeah. Well, maybe Nobel laureates get to have that superpower, you know? Yeah, it's totally possible. Is, is apparated a word? Uh, for Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that, we'll <laughs> end this conversation. <laughs> wait, wait, I want to share a story, too. Ooh, okay. Kind of like yours. All right. Uh, I was in a bar in England, and Stephen Ooh. Hawking went past the bar window. Are you serious? Steven, so you were just at a bar in Cambridge, you said? In Cambridge, yep. Which is where Cambridge University is, I assume. Yes, it's, that's where I was, yes. And that is where Stephen Hawking worked? Correct. 
And so he was just, he, was he in his wheelchair at the time? I yep. assume it must have been, yeah. And he just rolled past the window. And we were like... Oh, past the window. Okay, so he wasn't going in the bar. No, we were in the bar. Because <laughs> I was like, how does that work? <laughs> that would have been super cool. Yeah. <laughs> if he just sort of like, you know, came up next to you and just like ordered a beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe he went to a different bar. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Um, that's super awesome. I feel like, you know, like Cambridge and Oxford, because Oxford is another city, right? Right. Like town. I feel like, you know, you... And a lot of the people there do look like wizards. I mean, it, it, there is a sort of Harry Potter vibe. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We do. Um, okay. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like you're not telling me something. <laughs> well, you do have to wear the, you know, the robes. The robes. For certain events. That's excellent. <laughs> when I start a university, everybody has to wear robes. 